Hebrews chapter 8, and beginning in verse 1. And ladies and gentlemen, this is the Word of God. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises." For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt." For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete is growing old, and growing old is ready to vanish away. Let's pray. Be exalted, Lord, as your word goes forth. May what is proclaimed be true. May you accomplish all in your purposes as it goes forth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In Hebrews chapter 7, uh, we have 14 points of contrast between the Levitical priesthood and the Melchizedek priesthood. And right at that point, as Americans... And the Western world people, we think, what has that got to do with me? It's got everything to do with us, because this is the God who has given us his word and has told us how to approach him. And Jesus said something significant in John chapter 4 in his conversation with the woman at the well. He said, salvation is from the Jews. If you think about it, your Bible is basically a Jewish book. Old Testament, of course, what we call the Old Covenant. Old Testament is a Jewish book. It's the Hebrew Scriptures. And then Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and onward, we basically have Hebrew people, Hebrew apostles, who have written things down. There are 
certainly uh, there is a lot for us to be thankful for the Jews because to them were given the oracles of God, Paul wrote, Romans chapter 3, verse, tw- verse 2. We have a Jewish Messiah, a Jew saved all who are to be saved, the Jewish Messiah. We get in because of faith in him. So, in writing to the Hebrew Christians, the writer outlines things that would be very, very precious to them or would make great sense to us, uh, to them. And to us, for us, we have to study these things because it's not normally natural to us. And so we saw those 14 points of contrast. And what I'm thrilled about is that that's a lot to take in. And so he summarizes his points in chapter 8, verse 1. Now, the point in what we're saying is this. In other words, that's a lot to take on board. But here's the main point. We have such a high priest. We have him. We're not just going to get him someday. This is not just pie in the sky when you die. It's steak on the plate while you wait. This is Christ available now in all his fullness, in all his perfection. He is perfect and his work is perfect. He's the perfect high priest and we have him. What a message. We have him. And so, though it looks like we have no priest because the Levitical priests are still functioning, I believe this was written before AD 70 when God put a definite stop to all of that as the temple was destroyed in Jerusalem. But at this point, they serve, as verse 5 say, says, they continue to serve. They serve, present tense, a copy. And it looked like the Jews around them had it all. They had the priests functioning. But as we're seeing, everything they were doing was obsolete because of Christ and what he had done. You remember when Jesus died, the veil of the temple was torn in two, which signified the barrier between God and man. And it was God who tore the curtain down. God had instructed the people to build the curtain and he was the one who struck it down, tore it down as an act of God. So, a lot to take in. So the writer summarizes by five points and we need to get it. We have such a high priest. He's the priest we need and we have him. He's ours now and forever. Not just for a a, a few momentary years. That was true in Israel because no priest lived forever. But Jesus lives forever after the order of Melchizedek and so much has been said in chapter 7 regarding this. Verse 1, now the point in what we're saying is this, we have such a high priest. And point number one of the four is one who is seated. Do you see that? One who is seated. He has sat down. In other words, he's done something no other priest has done because in the Old Testament order, there was no accommodation for priests to sit down. There were no chairs in the tabernacle. There were no chairs in the temple. The priest's function was always onward and onward and over and over, repeating sacrifices. Jesus, in contrast, made one sacrifice for sin and sat down. Levitical priests never sat down because their work was never complete. Jesus completed his work and even said so, it is done, it is finished, it's accomplished, paid in full. Sat down where? The next phrase, at the right hand of the throne of the majesty. At the right hand, the place of all power, of the majesty, a title for God. He has sat down, where? On a throne, at the right hand of the throne of the majesty. In other words, this priest, we have such a high priest, this priest is also king. He's a king as well as a priest, something unknown in the Old Testament. 
As a priest, he represents us. As a king, he has authority to do all that he wishes. It's Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 4 that says this, Where the word of a king is, there is power. And where is his throne? Not in physical Jerusalem. You can't see it. This is a faith walk. It's more real than everything you can see. More real. Heaven and earth will pass away. My words will never pass away, Jesus said. So where is this throne? Not in physical Jerusalem or any other city, but point three, in heaven. At the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, in the heavens. His ministry, the priest, king's ministry, is not merely on an earthly plane. The earthly is merely the copy. It's the model, the originals in heaven. And Jesus has a heavenly, not an earthly ministry. Verse 2 of Hebrews 8. A minister in the holy places. In other words, this is his present day ministry. We read in the Gospels of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in Acts chapter 1, it tells of all that he began to do and teach. In other words, he's still doing. He's still teaching. And also, he is interceding for us as our high priest in the present day. He's a minister in the holy places. Point four, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. In other words, in the true tabernacle, which was pitched by God, set up by God, not man. God gave instructions in the Old Testament for the uh, erection of the tabernacle, but God had done the original first, and everything on earth was merely a copy. God pitched the heavenly tabernacle, which is the original. Then in verses 3 and 4, we have the function of a priest described. For every high priest is appointed, look at this, to offer gifts and sacrifices. We run over that because we're going to, we think, get to more important things. But that is a loaded statement. A priest offers gifts and sacrifices. What's the big deal with that? Only a priest can rightfully offer gifts and sacrifices. We, we don't think that way. We think, well, we're American. We can, with a little bit of money and just attack the, the, the problem, we can get the thing done. And that's not the case with God. You can't just slip God a few hundred dollars or even a million dollars and he says, okay, I'll give you a, a, a way through this time. I'll, I'll, I'll blink. I'll uh, wink and we won't talk about the rules anymore because your money makes a way for you. It's not going to happen. You can't even offer God a gift without a priest. We don't think that way. I, I'm just going to go and offer God a million dollars. It's great you do. Great if you offer him five dollars. But God does not have, not have the responsibility of receiving that gift. It only is acceptable to him if it comes in an authorized way. By means of an authorized person. And that person has to be an authorized priest. And the message is... Everything of the Levitical system is now unauthorized. It's obsolete. It's out of date. No longer valid. Wow. Yeah. Every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. We can't just say, I'm going to offer a sacrifice in my backyard. I'm going to uh, sacrifice a bull. I'm going to do it. It's a big thing. I'm buying a bull. No, if you're not a priest, don't even try this. Do not try this at home. Don't do it. 
Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. He's a priest. He fulfills the function of a priest, and therefore he, this one, offers gifts and sacrifices. That's the message. Verse 4, now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. Why? Because Jesus is not of the Levitical system. He's of something higher, better, superior, the Melchizedek priesthood. But if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer, present tense, gifts according to the law. Again, Jewish people would grasp this. They'd grasp the massive implications of this. They understood only if the priest is accepted will the gift or sacrifice be accepted. And our gifts are accepted in and through Christ. Again, man cannot just walk up to God and present a sacrifice or a gift. No one except a priest has the right to offer sacrifice. He must be an authorized priest. In conversations which can last a long time or a very short time, I'm asked, what's your name? And second question, what do you do? And when I say my name's John and I'm a pastor, that either opens up conversations or it closes them pretty quickly. I'm a pastor. Well, on hearing that I was a pastor, one lady responded, oh, I'm sorry, I'm not into organized religion. I didn't think about it. It's probably a good thing I didn't. But I responded immediately, oh, you're into disorganized religion. She didn't really know what to do with that. I was met with stony silence. The fact is, we don't get to choose how we come to God. And we have to come through a priest. We don't think that way, but Jews would. They understood it. And in the New Testament, the entire book of Hebrews is given to us to tell us, we have a high priest and he's better. He's better than anything you can see with earthly eyes. We don't get to choose a religion we like. If we do, we're not accepted by God. But man today... It's very popular to say, I'm a spiritual person. I don't go to church. Uh, my, my church is my backyard. I go out and I've got a garden. I love to see the garden outside, and that's what I do on a Sunday. Well, God has given us his word. The Bible alone is the word of God, and such, since that's true, there are implications with that. Jesus, through his word, commands us. You ever heard this? Oh, I, I'm into Jesus. I love the red parts of our Bible. Uh, I, I haven't got really a big problem with red parts of the Bible, except, you know, you've seen some Bibles, the words of Jesus are in red, contrasted with everything else that's in black. The problem with that, it gives an impression that those are more inspired words than anybody else's. You see, when someone has a problem with Paul or Peter, they've actually got a problem with Jesus, because it's Jesus who inspired Peter and Paul. It's Jesus who is the Word of God made flesh, and the Holy Spirit has inspired the Word of God, so it's Jesus through Paul. It's Jesus through Paul, and then we have the book of Romans. It's Jesus through Paul, and we have the book of 1 Corinthians. You've got a problem with Paul? You've got a problem with Jesus. And people have a problem because God has given us His Word and tells us, this is how you will approach me. No other way. Uh, 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 the, the service is too short. Sorry. The service is too long. Sorry. Uh, I don't like the music. Sorry. It's about me. Can we sing about our nation? Can we sing about 
flowers and trees. No, not unless you address God and thank him for the flowers and the trees and your nation. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Well, um, I like, and God says, I know you might like it, but have you noticed, Moses was never instructed to go around the tents of the Amalekites and find out what kind of service they'd come to. Excuse me, what kind of service, and we're taking a poll. What kind of service would you come to? How long would it be? Okay, okay, 12 minutes, all right. Drive through church. You'll come in your camel, okay, okay, on your camel, all right. No, you'll, in fact, there was no ministry, when you think about it, to the Amalekites and the Canaanites. God just said, set it up this way. This is for my people, and you'll approach me this way. I'm very grateful when the unconverted come into the church, but the church itself, the meaning, is for God and his people. It's about him, and he said, this is how you'll approach me. You'll read the word. Well, people don't always like that. I don't care. That's, well, I do care, but I don't, I'm not going to change. God says, I'm the Lord, I don't change. And he's given us the instruction. So the job of the pastor is to search out what does God say he likes in the service. Someone said to me some time back, oh, it was a great service. After the service, they said that. And I thought to myself, I think God will be the judge of that. I'd love it that God says, that was a great service. But that's the point, isn't it? John Calvin once said this, the Bible is the scepter by which the heavenly king rules his church. Proverbs 14, 12, there is a way that seems right to a man, but the ways thereof are the ways of death. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So, having God's authorized priest is not a luxury, it's an essential. And the Jews would understand that, and we need to understand it. We need a priest, and here's the message, we have him. We have him. Let's go to verse 5 of Hebrews 8. They, the Levitical priests, serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Let's go to Exodus. Keep your place in Hebrews. In fact, if we're going to understand Hebrews, we're going to be in Exodus and more prominently Leviticus as time goes on. Exodus chapter 25. Look with me in verse 9. This is the Lord speaking to Moses. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. God said, this is the way you'll do it, and I'm not coming till you get it all done according to my specifications. You remember the glory cloud filled the temple only after everything was put in place the way God had instructed. Uh, Look at verse 40, same chapter. And see to it that you make them after the pattern for them which is being shown you on the mountain. There it is, there's a pattern. There's something that must be done his way. Now we're in Exodus. Let's go to the far right of our Bible, to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 11. We're just going to jump in because 
If we don't, we'll get in and we'll never get out. That's true with the book of Revelation. There are some people who just can't get into it, and there are some that just can't get out of it. (laughs) A fanatic is someone who won't change his mind and won't change the subject, Winston Churchill said. It's profound. Uh, Revelation chapter 11, look at verse 19. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavenly hail. The point I'm making just by referring to that verse is, the thing on earth is the copy of the heavenly. Revelation here reveals that there is the heavenly a heavenly sanctuary, a heavenly temple, and in it is the Ark of the Covenant. So everything that was instructed was simply a copy of that which is real in heavenly places. Back to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 6, and we come to what we call the fourth passage of comparison in the book of Hebrews. We've seen three of them so far. Uh, Jesus is superior to angels, that's chapter 1. Jesus is superior to Moses, that's chapter 3. And then the Levitical priesthood is outlined in chapter 7. Now this fourth comparison, the the contrast was in chapter 7, the Levitical priesthood and the priesthood of Melchizedek. And now the old covenant and the new. Look with me, chapter 8 of Hebrews and verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. Every statement here is loaded. Everything here is not a waste of space. It has something to say to us. Three things are better. Christ in his more excellent ministry. He has already performed and brought the perfect sacrifice and makes perfect intercession. Jesus, hear this, always gets his prayers answered. And he's interceding for us. Second, this covenant, this ministry, this covenant is mediated on a better setting. It's a better covenant. It is eternal, not temporary. The old was temporary. And third, it's enacted on better promises. The promises are far greater than the old covenant promises. And we're going to explain that. Verse 7 of Hebrews 8. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. In other words, if the first covenant had done the job, we wouldn't have need of a second. But it didn't do the thing. It didn't do the thing necessary. Verse 8, we're told why. For he finds fault with them when he says. Now before we move on, every word is inspired here. And the fault wasn't with the covenant so much as the people. For he finds fault with who? Them. What? Them. When he says. Them is the problem. (laughs) That's not good English, but you get the point. The fault lies with the people, not the covenant. And the following verses are going to bring this out. But it's a message found throughout the Bible. It's not our environment that is a factor. That's what's wrong with our society. It's the environment. Well, 
Think of that biblically, look at that statement through a biblical lens, and there was a couple in a perfect environment. How did that turn out? Adam and Eve. You can be in a perfect environment and still sin. Have you noticed there can be twins raised in the same family and one become uh, a professor and the other someone who murders folk? It does not matter simply the environment of man, it's the heart of man. In fact, you might want to write this down, I heard it years ago, the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. Man was wicked, Genesis 6. The thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. Education's not the answer. What we've produced by means of the internet is not a perfect society, but more educated criminals. You read Romans chapter 7, it's about that. The law is good, it's holy. The problem is us. The problem is not the law that says don't covet, Paul says. It's the fact that I want to covet, I want to have other people's stuff. And the law brings that out. The law brought sin out into the open. It showed me my heart nature. I'm a rebel at heart. It's been well said. If our greatest need had been information, God would have sent an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent us an economist. But since our greatest need was forgiveness, God sent us a Savior. Amen. Amen. The covenant that was based on the law was rendered ineffective. That's what we're reading in Hebrews. Not because of any fault in the law, but by the weakness of our nature, man's nature. We always were able to say, I'll do everything you say, God. And within moments, we're worshiping a false God. Read Israel's history. It's all about that. The law wasn't the problem. We are the problem. Our hearts are wicked, desperately wicked. Don't follow your heart. What? No, don't follow your heart. Lead it. Your heart is more wicked than anything. That's what the Bible says about your heart. I'll just always let your conscience be your guide. Jiminy Cricket, you are wrong. Some people have a seared conscience. They're doing wrong stuff that violates God, but they've got no conscience about it, and God has given them over to their sin. How can it be wrong when it feels so right? God says it's wrong. Well, I don't like that. Well, turn around. It's just like a cat being petted, and you're petting the cat the wrong way. The cat's upset. Cat, turn around. Everything's good. Everything's good. That's what repentance is. Turning around. The heart is deceitful above quite a few things. Is that what your Bible says? The heart is deceitful above all things. That's all things. Get a pile as high as it can go. Take it to the sky. And then you're listing things that are problem things. And on top of the pile is your heart. It's above all things. Above all things, the heart is wicked. Desperately sick. The heart is deceitful above all things. Reading on in verse... Eight, we then have, for he, find fault, he finds fault with them when he says, and then there's a quotation from the book of Jeremiah. Something was prophesied in Jeremiah. Let's go there. Keep your place in Hebrews. Go to Jeremiah. 
What's interesting for those who are scholars amongst us is that there's, a, there's a slight differences between what we read in Jeremiah in the quotation and what we read in the New Testament. And the reason for that is the writer was quoting the Greek Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, and there were just very minor differences, but that's a, another subject for another time. But in Jeremiah chapter 31, when God was bringing his judgment on the nation and putting them in a strange land in judgment, just as he said you would, he would, you broke my covenant, you'll be removed from the land. They were being removed, but in the midst of all that, he brings a promise. Jeremiah chapter 31. Behold, verse 31. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. That represents all of Israel. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. Oh, there's going to be a new covenant? It's not going to be like the old. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make, future tense, with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Here's the difference. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That phrase is significant. It's one of the most significant statements in all of Scripture to define, as God sees it, the relationship he has with his people. I'll be their God. They shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. That's a distinction of the new covenant. Everyone in the new covenant knows the Lord personally. That was not true under old covenant schemes. They had an outward form of obedience. Males were circumcised. They had an outward form, an expression of worship but not all who are Israel are truly Israel. A point made in Romans 9, verse 6. Verse 34, And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. Who? The people of the new covenant. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. We're in Jeremiah. Also go to the book of uh, Exodus. Exodus, again, I said we might be back, or if I didn't, I should have warned you. Exodus chapter 6. And I'd like us to read the first seven verses, and I'm simply going to read them. This is God promising deliverance to his people. They're in Egypt. They're under the heel of Egypt, under the suppression and oppression of Egypt. But that was about to change. But Yahweh, the Lord, said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name the Lord did I... But by my name, the Lord, that's Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. 
Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. These are highly significant words. Note the, the context. And again, I'll be your God, you'll be my people. That's a great summary of what we call covenant theology in the Bible. And here's the point I want you to see. Exodus 6 comes before Exodus 20. Well, I learned something new today. (laughs) What's Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments? Here's the significance. Before he ever told them to do something, he redeemed them. Salvation is by grace. Even here. That's a wow statement. I'm setting up my covenant with you and it's not based on how well you do. This is based on my name, who I am, what I do. And I'm about to deliver you. And boy, did he. He took down the greatest empire in world history at that time by his acts, by the plagues. You can't read Exodus 9 through to chapter 20 and not be impressed by the plagues. What power God demonstrated to redeem his people so that Pharaoh, in in the end, said, okay, get out, and God was behind it all. Romans 9 says, I raised you up, Pharaoh, basically to do you in in the Red Sea so that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And God delivered Israel before he said, now, these are my laws. So it is. By grace are you saved. Through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. He redeemed them when they had done nothing to show that they were climbing the ladder of salvation. He redeemed them by his power. Salvation has always been, redemption has always been by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, based on his holy scriptures alone, all to the glory of God alone. That's the way it is. God's covenant was established before the law of commandments. Redemption before law. People violated the covenant. They said they'd obey it all. They did not. And we read in Jeremiah, there's a new covenant coming. Rick Phillips writes this, The overall purpose of Hebrews is to warn Jewish Christians against falling back into Judaism. Having refused to accept Jesus as the promised Messiah, Judaism was set aside as a valid way to God and to salvation. Our passage argues this by making a point about the new covenant that came in Christ and was promised even in the days of the old covenant. Verses 8 through 12, he's now back in Hebrews chapter 8, are a citation from Jeremiah 31. At the time of the fall of Jerusalem, when the old covenant was finally shattered, that great chapter promises not that the old covenant would be patched up and fixed, but that its aims would be accomplished through a new and different covenant. 
You go to Jeremiah chapter 50. Jeremiah chapter 50. As we're going through this, we're really laying claim to understand our Bibles. This is the work of God in redemption. Jeremiah chapter 50, look at verse 4. In those days and in that time, declares the Lord, the people of Israel and the people of Judah, again, all Israel, shall come together, weeping as they come, and they shall seek the Lord their God, and they shall ask the way to Zion, with faces turned toward it, saying, Come, let us join ourselves to the Lord in an everlasting covenant that will never be forgotten. That's the promise of the new covenant. Back to Hebrews. Your fingers are getting a workout. It's good. As we read that passage, we read that in the New Covenant, God will write His laws on human hearts in contrast to the tablets of stone. And it's interesting we read this in the New Testament. Now our ears can prick up and we say, oh, I see how everything fits now. I'm just going to quote it. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 2. You yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. There it is. Paul gets it. Of course he gets it. Do we get it? It takes the Holy Spirit to work on the human heart, to write the law of God, not on the outside, which was on stone in the Old Covenant, but on the heart, so that we now want to do what we didn't want to do before. You might be a Christian and struggling. Pastor, I'm struggling with sin. The fact that you're struggling means you're a Christian. The Holy Spirit's in you. The Holy Spirit's in you, who is the Holy Spirit, and He's working in you so that you are fighting sin, whereas before you didn't have a problem with it. Hey, I'm a good sinner, God's a good forgiver, we've got a good relationship. No. There's something in you that says, I don't want to sin. What we look forward to in heaven is be free from our earthly bodies, which contains that fleshly nature, so that you, cannot, you and I can live in harmony with one another. Some people say, I don't want to go to heaven if Brother Bob's there, because he really annoys me. Brother Bob won't annoy you there. He'll be good. <laughs> I'm going to keep it down where my uh, earthly dwelling and uh, heavenly dwelling is. I don't want him to know. I don't want him visiting, even for coffee. That's Bible, you know, Hebrews. Okay, help him, Jesus. You just lost the anointing right there. <laughs> God writes his word on human hearts. That's the new covenant. We actually want to please Him. And it's a good assessment test for us. If there's no want to with you, if you hear what the commandment of God is, and there's no want to of obedience, check your heart. Are you really a Christian? Because the Christian will want to. He might struggle with it. 
That's what Romans 7 is all about. The good I want to do, I don't do. The thing I don't want to do, I end up doing. That's the struggle of the Christian life. But if there's no want to regarding the will of God, you know what he wills, and there's no interest, check your heart. Has he written his law in your heart? Well, how do I get that? How do I? You can't do it. It has to be an act of God. But get under the spout where the glory comes out. That means get under the word of God, because that's the means by which God achieves the work of regeneration by the proclamation of the Word of God. Someone who's saved at some point has heard the Word of God and the Holy Spirit has superintended that Word so that you now want Christ and you didn't want Him before. You want to obey Him, you didn't want to before. And the first thing you want to do is repent and believe the good news. Then be baptized. Then be a member of a church and then say, well, I'm struggling with that. Well, then come to the membership inquiry class. Amen. Amen. The old only brought the outward form. Some people have a problem with Christianity. Too many hypocrites. Well, come on in. There's room for one more. But it's Jesus who said there would be hypocrites. Who've got the outward trappings. The Pharisees could do that. They've got all the trappings. They, they know that they're handing hymn books out. They, they, they look the part, they're singing the part, but when God comes to scrutinize them, there's nothing in their heart. Jesus called the Pharisees whitewashed tombs. You look good on the outside, but there's nothing in you. Perish the thought. I want to be real. How about you? I want to have the real deal, the real thing. Be the real thing. Read Hebrews chapter 8, verse 11, my note says. All right, let's read Romans 8, excuse me, Hebrews 8, verse 11. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. Now this is key in the new covenant. Everyone in the new covenant knows Christ. That's significant. That has massive implications. We won't get to them today. But that wasn't true in the old covenant. There's people we read of and we think, do you think, do you think we're going to see them in heaven? Look at them. Look the way they, they ended up, you know. And I don't know. What do you think, pastor? And say, uh, I've studied it a lot for decades. And here's my answer. I don't know. It's the only profession where you can get away with that. Try that when you work on cars. Uh, you've had my car for two days. What's wrong with that? Uh, what's you know that noise I'm hearing and well I've looked into it and here's what we've come to as a group that's worked on your car we don't know it's one of those things we're going to find out in the suite by and by <laughs> are you taking your car back there no no you're not but there's a lot of mystery we bump into mystery and it's good for us to say when we don't know I don't know but there's many things we can be sure of many things this new covenant provides pro perfect access to God. And perfection and access go together. God forgives and blots out our transgressions. Scripture says, for his own sake, for his own name's sake. One scripture we should go to, Isaiah Keep your place in Hebrews. Isaiah chapter 48. I want to give you what I think are the most God-centered verses in the Bible. We see something similar in Ephesians. It's not the only place this is stated, but it's the most concentrated 
set of verses where God tells us why he does what he does in saving a people. Isaiah 48. Israel has defied God, served other idols, but God saves Israel, and he explains why. He's about to vent his anger on them, rightfully so, but he does not do so, and here's why, here's why in his own words. Verse 9. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. I could cut you off. I'm angry with you, but I'm not going to do it. Here's why. For my name's sake, for the sake of my praise. That's not going to look good for me when I bring you out of Egypt and then just do you in. And we have no more record of you. That's not going to look good for my name, so I'm not going to do it. I'm doing everything for my name. Well, that sounds a little self-centered, doesn't it? God is the only being for whom everything he does for him is right. We're to live for the glory of God. Sin is defined as not living for the glory of God. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Here's the great thing. God lives for the glory of God. God can look around the universe and say, what's the most amazing thing? What is it out there that is just so precious? I know, me. I've made everything for my glory. That's what Psalm 19 says. The heavens declare what? The glory of God. Everything you and I can see, it's about God. Why is the universe so big and massive and it blows our mind? We can't even grasp it. God says, I made it to show you something about me. It wasn't about you. I thought everything was about me. I thought it was all about me. No, it wasn't about you. you There are planets out there. We can't even name them. There are so many billions of galaxies, let alone stars. Well, I think I should be able to be involved in all that. No, it was all about me, God says. But there are planets out there that that have no function for us. They don't regulate the tides like the moon does. That's not like the sun that gives us any light and heat. They're just out there. Why is is that out there when it's not about me? Because it was never about you, sweetheart. It was about me and my glory. I made all things for my glory. And he saves you for his glory. That's why you're such a big project. So that God looks good when he saves you. Oh, I thought there was something impressive about me. No, it was never about you. It was about him. God looks at John and says, that guy's so, so gone. So unsavable, except for my activity. I'm going to save him. He'll be a trophy of grace. So that he'll sing at the throne of grace, amazing grace. How sweet the sound. Saved a wretch like me. There are some churches who won't sing that. They'll change the words. That saved a person like me. No, uh, you were a wretch. If God has saved you, and when you're saved and before the throne, God's going to look good, not you. Look what he's done. Worthy is the lamb that was slain. All right, we haven't finished. For my name's sake, that's God, I defer my anger for the sake of my praise. That's God. I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. I should do, but I'm not going to do it. 
Why? For my name, for my praise. Behold, I've refined you, but not as silver. I've tried you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. That's the third time he's mentioned himself. For my own sake. That's the fourth time he's mentioned himself. I do it. For how shall my name, that's the fifth time, be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Five times God tells us why he saves Israel, why he saves anyone. And God says, it was all about me. Ephesians says we're saved to the praise of the glory of his grace. It was always, always about him. Verse 13 of Hebrews chapter 8. In speaking of the new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Verse 13 is no longer a quotation from Jeremiah. It's a summary statement. And here's the summary. The old thing has passed away. Because the new has come. I don't know many people who would be excited if all of their technical equipment, including their phones, were no longer available to them. All they had was setting fire to a hill and smoke signals or Morse code. It's good if that's all you've got, but there's something better. Once you understand what is better in Christ, you have no reason to go back. Smoke signals, people can only see the mountain and you can only communicate with them and you're not sure they'll even see it. We've got such technology we can communicate with someone in outer space or even worse, in Ireland. We can text them. I've, done, I've texted someone in Switzerland this week. How do you do that? You just go, send. I don't want to go back. I'm not going back to smoke signals with the best binoculars in the world. He'll never see it, my friend in Switzerland. We have something better in Christ. A better priest has made a better sacrifice and is now at the right hand of the throne in the place where we, where we need him. I don't need him on earth. I want to know that in heaven he counts and what he's done has counted for me. And that he's praying on the basis of what he's done. He's brought himself as the offering. And we have him. And what God has done in the new covenant is not just given us a set of laws. He redeemed us and he writes his law on our hearts so that we now want him. Where are you in this? All in the new covenant are God's people. They shall all know me from the least to the greatest. And there will be no divorce. God says you're mine. You are forever mine. And we say, and you are my God forever. I wrote this some time back, and it's really a quotation. A lengthy one, and that's what I'm going to finish with today. You doing good? When Luther first sought to explain his Reformation discovery to the world, it was a story of a wedding that framed what he said. Drawing on the romance of the lover and his beloved in Song of Solomon, he told the gospel as a story of a rich and divine bridegroom, Christ, who marries this poor, wicked harlot 
redeems her from all her evil and adorns her with all his goodness. At the wedding, a wonderful exchange takes place whereby the king takes all the shame and debt of his bride and the harlot receives all the wealth and royal status of her bridegroom. For Jesus and the soul that is united to him by faith, it works like this, quoting Luther, Christ is full of grace, life and salvation. The soul is full of sins, death and damnation. Now let faith come between them and sins, death and damnation will be Christ's, while grace, life and salvation will be the soul's. For if Christ is a bridegroom, he must take upon himself the things which are his bride's and bestow upon her the things that are his. If he gives her his body and very self, how shall he not give her all that is his? And if he takes the body of the bride, how shall he not take all that is hers? To quote Michael Reeves, in the story, the prostitute finds that she's been made a queen. That does not mean she always behaves as befits royalty. But however she behaves, her status is royal. She's now the queen. So it is with the believer. She remains a sinner and continues to stumble and wander, but she has the righteous status of a perfect and royal bridegroom. She is, and until death will remain, at the same time, but both utterly righteous in her status before God and sinner in her behavior. That means that it is simply wrong-headed for the believer to look to her behavior as an accurate yardstick of her righteousness before God. Her behavior and her status are distinct. The prostitute will grow more queenly as she lives with the king and feels the security of his love. But she will never become more the queen. Just so. The believer will grow more, more Christ-like over time, but never more righteous. Thus, because of Christ and not because of her performance, the sinner can know a despair-crushing confidence. To quote Luther again, her sins cannot now destroy her since they are laid upon Christ and swallowed up by him. And she has that righteousness in Christ, her husband, of which she may boast as of her own and which she can confidently display alongside her sins in the face of death and hell and say, if I've sinned, Yet my Christ in whom I believe has not sinned and all his is mine and all mine is his. What an insight. What an insight. Turn to Revelation 21 and we'll close. This is where we're headed. This is where we're headed. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. 
He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. That covenant language goes all the way back to Exodus chapter 6. How do we get in on this? The gospel of Jesus Christ. We've sinned, we're rebels. And God in his love for the world sent his son, the second person of the Trinity, born of a virgin, living a flawless, perfect life. He went to the cross and absorbed the anger of God due to us. The Bible calls it the wrath of God. He was punished in our place. And he carried our sins in his body and bore them. The Lord, the Father, laid on him the iniquity of us all, Isaiah 53 says. He died and rose again and is now at the place of all authority in this universe, having provided salvation in him. Repent, believe the good news, that trust in Christ, like you would a parachute, saves you from the fall that is to come. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you for this new covenant. Write your words on our hearts. And in this be glorified, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Come to the Lord's table as those with gratitude do because he did it all. Everything necessary and everything sufficient.